Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Catch Caught podcast. This week, we have another guest on, Connor, who is um, very um, active in the Irish language area, a trained hypnotherapist, also studied psychology, and is here today to share his story and work um, in Ireland. So, Connor, welcome on. How is your day been? Be with Caught. Thanks for having me. Yeah, good, good. Having a good day, thankfully, and uh, delighted to be here to talk to you. Thanks for having me. No bothers. Um, yeah. So, would you give us a little kind of insight into what brought about your love or grow for the Irish language again? Was it always there, or has it come back? Yeah, there's a bit of a scale with this. All right. Yeah, it was there, then it was lost, and was there, and was lost. So, uh, I had the pleasure, any anyway, of I didn't come from a background of like you know Irish or being spoken home right like that. I think my mother went to the girl once or twice, so she had a grow for it, but. It wasn't, I wasn't aware of it. And I went to a Gaelic school though when I was younger. So that was, yes, that was my first few formative years. And uh, that gave me the foundation I had. So like when I was leaving school anyway, at whatever, 12, 13, I, I was fluent in Irish too well to the level of a 12 or 13 year old can be. But, um, and I was like, I enjoy, I loved my time in school to be fair. Like I had no issues. I, I enjoyed primary school. All right. But uh, the Irish language itself wasn't the forefront of my mind, really. And I chose, I kind of had an option to go maybe to a man's school, and I chose to go to an English-speaking secondary school because I think at that time, uh, unfortunately, I probably thought, sure, that's, that's enough Irish for now. I've done that, and now I want... Because I didn't know. All I knew was education through Irish. So I chose, unfortunately, what well, obviously was meant to, but I went to an English-speaking um, secondary school. But... So, so that continued on. And really at that time in my life as a teenager, I I enjoyed Irish. Well, but more importantly, it was seen to me, it wasn't something I was passionate about, really. I didn't have like a massive love or a big pride about it, but it was seen to me anyway as a handy subject, basically. That's how I saw it, which it was. The the level, the difference between myself and people that had gone to an English speaking school, the gulf at the time, it was just monstrous. So definitely up to junior start, the first three years, uh, I didn't learn anything really. It was just kind of reading certain stuff while the rest of the class did stuff. Um, but because of that, I kind of probably took a backseat and thought this is easy, you know. So at the time and through all of secondary school, I probably was a big fish in a small pond, and so that didn't encourage me to propel myself on to improve. So that affected me probably later on. So even leaving cert, I do remember kind of going, "Oh, this is this is quite difficult. This isn't easy anymore," you know, because like everything in life, at some point you have to put a bit of work in. Um, but that that was kind of it then. Yeah, I did okay in my Irish, not that great, but it wasn't, again, forefront. And then I went to university in Derry, actually, and I studied psychology. But my 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 roommates at the time was studying Irish, and that was like, whoa, you know, that's next level stuff. And he was beautiful, Gwailgar, from West Belfast. And I'm still, thankfully, very close to him now. And But that was my first inklings. That was the first time in my life where I felt shame around the Irish. Because I, in my opinion, when I was thinking, oh, God, I'm the gulf between him and I was massive. And because especially I hadn't been using it. So there was years. So I think that's another thing with language. I think people have these misconceptions around, you know, sure, if you have it once, you'll never lose it. Now, in some capacity, deep down, it's there. But you have to, like a muscle, use it. You have to practice it. If you don't, it wears away. So so that was the case for me. So I was using it every now and then, but it was my Irish was quite poor. I could understand nearly everything that was said to me, but uh, without practice, I wasn't very confident. But that was the inklings of like shame, embarrassment, not, not having the confidence to speak it out. So that was the start of that. And then 
college went by and that was it. Again, wasn't forefront, but it was around the time my son was born. So we're talking five and a half years ago. And I was working with someone at the time who was raising their children bilingual. And I kind of thought, you know, that must be really complicated. But he said, no, no, it's as simple as this. Because I think his partner was from Brazil. So they were, and all he said was, I speak English to the children. And my wife speaks Portuguese to the children. That's it. So one parent speaks one language. The other parent speaks the other. That's it. There's no complication. There's no fancy stuff. And I don't know why. I'm probably looking back at it now. You could call it divine inspiration. But I thought, maybe I could do that with my son. And my son was actually a couple of months old. So he wasn't even like newborn. Maybe he was about four or five months old. And I thought, I'm going to do that. And my partner, Claire, is actually from is from England. But all her ancestry is from Ireland. So she'd moved over. But... She she and she was supportive. She was like, yeah, no, she was like, I don't have a clue what you're going to be saying. But I did it. And I started from there and I started speaking Irish every day. But even then I was I was embarrassed, you know, even though I'm speaking to a little baby, like I wasn't comfortable shouting it out. I was kind of like whispering. I do remember a time being in the kitchen and Clint was like, why are you whispering? And, I, and she probably would have no concept of why I would have embarrassment or shame around that. But I did. And it was still there. So it was a lovely journey with, with my son Wolfgang, where we. I grew like obviously he's learning, but I was just through simple repetition every day. My confidence is building and growing, and that's how I kind of hit main Rolesh, Arish. You know, that's how I fell in love with it again. And so it was a slow burner, but it became, you know, a major part. And you know, when they're younger, you can be kind of gentle and stuff. But you know, if they're running around the supermarket, you have to be confident, in, like you know, Darren Shaw. Yeah, you have to be able to. So I got used to them being out in public, you know, my local town and speaking in Irish and people hearing me and the positive response I got. So so, so that was it. So I was really enjoying that. And then I thought, well, how can I incorporate in, into the work I'm doing then? So I was kind of doing stuff around meditation and workshops and stuff. But my first um, workshop was around, uh, I had a real interest about two or three years ago in mantra, you know, Sanskrit mantra. And I really benefited from that at the time in meditation. But I wanted to see, oh, you know, I wonder, is there a link between Sanskrit and Irish? Now, I don't know why I thought that at the time. And I hadn't at the time read, I think, Mankon's book was just coming out or it may have come out, but I hadn't read it yet. And I had looked up even on the Internet and there was this link. And I thought, wow, this is amazing. So I did a workshop around kind of mantra. So the first half was talking about Sanskrit mantra and the power of it. And then the second half was the massive links that kind of India and Ireland have and Sanskrit and the Irish language. Uh, and that was a start where that kind of a, a big interest started to grow. And I really enjoyed that workshop, the combination of it. And so I thought, I have to keep this going. And that's what I did then. So a lot of my workshops now are, are using the Irish language in some capacity and, and using, if I am doing meditations, then they're bilingual so that it's for everyone, but it's to, for people to have the availability to hear it, to have the chance to hear the Irish language. And yeah, it's, um, but that, that was it. Sorry to give you, give you a very long-winded answer. But that was the start of it where I started to see, you know, the idea then of the shame or why we have shame around it and people not being comfortable, including myself. And that's what led me deeper into kind of my more current work of, you know, I had a workshop last year on reconnection because it was that idea of maybe we've lost something, we've disconnected and um, for a lot of us currently, you know, including myself at times during my life to the Irish language and all things Irish. And so that was a way of kind of my idea at the time was like, oh, like to reignite or to reconnect with that wild kind of Irish native being within us, child, I suppose. Uh, and so that's what it was. Like, so it was the meditation was about kind of seek, finding this object in, in nature, you know, that was a lost part of ourselves and kind of, you know, taking that back into ourselves. So that was, 
that was the start of it, yes, which then led on to a deeper idea maybe of colonialism and decolonization and yeah, just exploring why we may have uh, such disconnection yet yeah, to our native language and a lot of Irish things in terms of our traditions, you know. Mm. I hope that answers the question. <laughs> yeah, that's perfect. Um, and do you think the shame as well is coming from that colonization of, you know, the upper class having the English and then having to learn, like, yeah, I, I, I to learn it. Yeah, I think there's because it's one of those questions. I think initially, before we dive into it, it seems like a probably a bit of an unanswerable question. You know, same as oh, you know, why can't we speak Irish even though we do it for years in school? When it's like, yeah, on the surface that seems it. It's actually so vague that actually that's not actually accurate. You know, and you know you'll see the big movements now. Um, I think it was yesterday about um about our system in Ireland, the education system is broken. So you would have seen maybe some people, um, if it's yeah, what day is it today? That, 19th so yes it would have been the 18th I think it was uh, where a lot of people read tape across their mouths and they were talking about how the system in Ireland is broken the for education anyway and so you know even breaking those myths of you know the Irish language is is a couple of hundred hours per year or sorry over the a couple of hundred hours over the lifespan of your, your school system there's no immersion so it's it's not as simple as that and um yeah with the shame that definitely goes back to kind of systemic as was trauma over the years and i do think definitely our modern attitudes to the modern negative attitudes to the irish language you know and even in terms of the things people say uh even close friends and man you know why would you study that you can't you can't get a job with that it's a dead language etc etc but i think they are and people just read them off without any sort of <laughs> backs or anything they just read them off it's just something they've heard that maybe their parents this doesn't mean even negative attitudes gets passed down that has no, sometimes there's no actual truth in it. Some of them there is, but some of them as well, it's just continuous stuff. They heard their parents or their grandparents and they just kind of reamed them out. And definitely, I think a lot of our modern day attitudes are echoes of the past for sure. Um, but yeah, definitely multi-generational trauma and just even the physical aspect in terms of on Gartha Moore and the famine. But there was a, yeah, systemic kind of, and this goes for all the colonizers. In a way, like Ireland isn't special. You know, this isn't because we can sometimes get into a competition of suffering. You know, like we've suffered the most. Um, so we're not getting into that uh, at all. But it is it is important to acknowledge that there was great, and there is great suffering in Ireland. And that we are, maybe because it seems like in modern day, there's not, a British soldier is not standing in front of us with a gun in our face. But I think... To in a, to a certain extent now they've left but we ourselves are still even mentally colonized even for not even to get into the fact that you know suppose we are still partitioned so we are physically actually colonized but i think even psychologically you could argue definitely that our traits now are modern attitudes as a, as a, are a result of um yeah of colonization and you see it everywhere for sure and like it's way more than physical you know it's like you see all those studies and even like, you know, generations of they've done studies on mice, even horses, like yes. the same thing happening, yeah. you know, like it's energy. I've seen that one with the the mice. I think it's a, I actually have it in a book here, um, but yeah, how they, they primed some, yeah, some of the mice to be a certain smell, like of, similar to almonds or something like that would be, they get a shock or something. 
um, and then of course their offspring, and then their offspring, all without even being present and subject to that shock, all had the same trait. So it's not a leap then to see even like 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 on Gert Moore isn't that fan wasn't long ago really in the in the grand scheme of history no. that's not a long time ago so there's only three generations maybe back so even in terms of physical like we would have the effects of but even in terms of the psychological the trauma mentally emotionally of that absolutely that would be with us and then that on top of that then you would have a systemic approach of really trying to eradicate the language because they would have known you know uh, all the colonizers but even like you know the english they were they learned very quickly and they learned well you know even for ireland we were the we were we were their apprenticeship you know in the world before they went anywhere we were the first colony so that they, they learned very well and then they went off and spread destruction unfortunately but yes that they definitely the effects of that are were catastrophic and we we are definitely seeing to this day and a lot of it was especially you'll see it around the world but like force subjugating people by force works for only so long you know eventually you have uprisings and stuff you'll always see that in history if you push people far enough like a dog in the corner or whatever they'll bite you or whatever animal and so a lot of colonizers learned this well that actually okay we can only keep them subjugated for so long so i loved my teacher kind of shared this with me and i always share with anyone but um you know but they realized that kind of guilt and shame were a great weapon then to keep people so like Guilt and shame are the main enemies to personal power. You know, to be in, you know, yeah. standing in your power, guilt and shame is what goes against that. And so they knew that well. So they they took away people's, you know, for even in Ireland, then they would have been an approach of trying to take away our language, you know, our stories, our music. And then, you know, piling on loads of shame and guilt on top of that onto the people. So that people then eventually over like this prolonged 10, 50, 100, 200 years, they start to, yeah, feel shame for just being who they are. That eventually, with that then, the people will eventually control themselves, you know, and that's through self-destructive behaviours, control and stuff like then, like what are the Irish known for? We have masters issues with addiction, specifically alcohol. And you do see that again all over the world. We have similar, very similar traits with the Australian Aboriginals and Native American, Lakota Sao, the Maori, the Canadian Inuits, there is a massive issues with addiction and that's not a coincidence uh, because it would have been the same tactic, a lot of horrific force, murder, trauma, and then pile on loads of guilt and shame for, for just being who you are and your identity. That has a, that's the stuff that carries on. Then. Um, and you'll see that. I know we've a whole ton of shame. <laughs> it's actually just, it's mad like there is so much shame like there's so much conditioning to work through um something just came up for me there I met a Scottish guy the other day and I was asking him about the native tongue and he was like oh no no it's mm. only like on the west on the islands there that's the only place you know and I was like oh wow like it's so similar you know all oh yeah it, it all is on the islands all where you couldn't the brave couldn't get to <laughs> um but it's just that's exactly you'll see that that's the same similar traits as like Trish on, on Garth Moor after the famine. It was the same thing like we, we see now in Ireland exactly that like the west coast is usually the Donegal, the 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 Mayo, the Sligo, the Kerry, the Cork. They're right in the peninsula, but they were the furthest away. So in a way, you could argue probably again because it took them, you know, the English so long to get there, and maybe the landscape as well. 
but also it's unfortunate that they were also the areas that were affected the most, the, the, the drop in the Irish language is the most because they were the poorest areas. So that's why, maybe again, because maybe the Pale and the East would have been, like Dublin now has most of the money and the English, English speaking, but as you went further away from that, it was more poor and more native Irish speakers. Mm-hmm. And so after the famine, then even like six years, years, I think I remember reading, obviously millions vanished basically overnight. So a third, I think, of the Irish speaking world had vanished. Um, well, they were either dead or overseas. And and so even with that as well, even with the the associations, like already before that, there would have been the associations with the Irish language would have been starting to be very negative. Um, but specifically after the famine, that would have then been the Irish language would have been associated with debt and despair and poverty. You know, so that's why you have a lot of people you see probably left and probably even too painful to think about. So when they went to America or overseas, it was probably easier at that time to just erase it all because it was just so like. I'm actually reading, I don't know if you remember that book, Under the Hawthorn Tree, that we would have done in school. Does that ring a bell? Okay. It's a children's book. Like We would have read it in primary school, Under yeah. the Hawthorn Tree. It's like a trilogy. But I actually found it there. It's like it's quite easy to read, obviously. But uh, that's, even for a child, it's pretty heavy for probably nine and ten-year-olds to read because it's describing uh, kind of a first-hand account of, of the famine at that time. And it's a tough read, and you're thinking, that must have been so difficult for like famine anywhere in the world. Um, but especially then because they then knew, like there's a scene she describes of getting to the docks and then seeing that they're all starving to death and then a boat is being stuffed full of grain and all sorts of lovely food. And they ask, where is that going? And it's going to England. Um, yeah, it's heavy stuff, heavy stuff. It's mad. I was just thinking there, like, you know, the way in some places on the West, like there's places in Kerry, there's places in mayo you know when people are like or in Kerry where they're like really proud like to be from the kingdom they call it you know and I'm thinking maybe yeah yeah you know even with people maybe there's parts in the west that like didn't have like obviously they were affected but maybe less affected so maybe their shame mightn't be as you know great as somebody oh in terms of like the Irish yeah 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 I'm just saying maybe that's probably it obviously they carry trauma but maybe it could be less you know the way like some people I meet and they're just so proud to be yeah from there they're just and you're like shut up will you just shut up (laughs) Um, yeah and there probably is something to that and specifically if maybe if it's an area that kept within reason some remnants of that Irish they probably do know like a lot of us like especially from the east and it's spreading out we were anglicized a lot faster so we did lose that and and some of that was by choice but a lot of it really wasn't by choice um but that that's an interesting way of looking at for sure and there's probably some truth to that um and absolutely like i suppose there's even a a pride to that because they would know even because maybe even again i think of the east in dublin that was the first place in waterford to really be you know where like the, the pale area so that was a massive cohort of, of the English and maybe the aristocracy. Yeah. So maybe they would have seen them as very English or, you know, West Brit or whatever. So that probably touches on that as well of, yeah. which probably remains to this day of sometimes, you know, kind of like back in the day used to be everyone against, you know, Man United. But now it's kind of like, you know, everyone against Dublin, you know, in terms of GEA, everyone's cheering for Dublin to lose. Uh, <laughs> me included. <laughs> I know. It's mad, isn't it? And then you'd have like areas, certain areas, you know, um, like big houses, big estates, big old, amazing forests like that were left, that were, you know, belonged to the British. And it's like, 
how did they like it's just it, it just amazes me like how they had these places you know um, and you'll notice that even with, with sometimes it's rare to find places that have big native trees you know like big one old yeah. ones and you will actually see them in those kind of big manor houses that's where you, in those estates you'll see them in one way it's lovely but probably that spent a long time of being in the hands of someone that wasn't from here uh, and a lot of them left anyway once the famine came and it was so bad they they just left and went to England um, yeah yeah because obviously that was probably their second summer house or something uh, but it is it's amazing to see yeah yeah yeah, somebody was telling me, you know, I was up at that festival last week in Dundalk, mm. in Balergan. Yeah, Manif- Manifestival, yeah, yeah. Somebody had said to me that that manor was actually part of, you know, it was part of the colonisation or whoever was involved. Um, And I was just like, I, I'm still in awe of the whole thing. I'm like, it's just colossal, you know, like the rooms, the room, one of the rooms like the size of my whole house. Yeah, like. yeah. And I'm yeah. like, and then this this neat. Well, I live in like a cow shed, so. <laughs> but like, one of, <laughs> and my and I was saying it to one of the people, and they were like, "Oh my god, are you okay? Like, do you need to upgrade?" I was like, "No, no, it's fine. It's converted." <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm actually really happy where I am. Yeah, yeah. Um, but like, I just was like, was so like they just had so much, like, and all these trees, like, just like beaches, mm. with trunks the size of like cars. Like, I mean. The woodland was phenomenal. The park, the trees, I just was like, you don't see trees that are that big, you know. And I'm like, how? You actually, that's, you actually don't. How do they keep it so preserved? And in the houses, you'll see are, it's probably weren't using it that much within reason. But like, even, but you're, it is quite, it's amazing and heartbreaking to then think the, yeah, the gulf in the wealth was so vast, you know, from, we think of some of our ancestors living in hovels. Uh, and then these were yeah you're right I've been up there and the rooms are just their ceilings go on forever it's it is it's it's quite mind blowing that um maybe because you just view it from one prism and realize oh no actually there was people that were living in uh, extreme I suppose it's like nowadays we think of some celebrities that it's not even they live in a different universe altogether it's probably not but a those... world I'd like to live in but yeah yeah were th- so you know those houses so were they built was there Irish in that Irish in them before or were they actually built by the Irish for the British or do you know Jesus that's a good question I think it could be a bit of both I don't actually know yeah yeah. because I can't even I'm not going to pretend to actually know that because I'd say it's a bit of both I'd say some of them were built and I'd say some of them were already Irish and could have been taken over that's a good one I'll have to look into that somebody told me like that the reason we have all you know the the um, stoned road ditches or whatever like the reason we have so many and like they're all going to the same place. It's like there's like five ways to get to one place is because they basically were trying to tire the Irish out. And that's why they did so many roads. Yeah, you know, that was a scheme. Yeah, unfortunately, they like obviously people needed there was no food, but then people needed money to buy food and no one had money. So then they would there was a scheme. Yeah. Famine roads where they would. um yeah, they'd hire people to work on these roads, but it, the road never went anywhere. There was no actual goal in mind. It was just to kind of give them something to do. So again, a lot of a lot of people died just on the roads and were just left there. Um, so it is, and it's it's interesting. It's coming up now more and more like that conversation that people are having. Maybe again, it was too powerful or too you know painful. I was going to say powerful and painful to have that conversation around uh, on Garth more. But it's coming up a lot more now, people, and even touching on, you know, it's think it's there's a lot more argument now, even towards that it's not so far to go to maybe even call it was, you know, was it a genocide? I think there's a lot of evidence to now even point to 
well, whether it was intentional or not, they definitely, you know, uh, they made it a hundred times worse. Basically, the, the British. I, I, I don't say they taught from the start. Oh yeah, great. But a lot of them, like, there's a lot of quotes I have of, you know, um, oh, what's his name, Charles. De... Anyway, he would have come over and uh, they would have called it an act of providence. A lot of the quotes, a lot, an act of providence. It was basically a merciful God made this decision um, on the Irish. Uh, but it, it was, it may have been an act of God for the, the blight in the play. Oh, but it was, it was their policy that made it a famine. That's how so many people died for sure. Because you'll even, I didn't know this, but like there was famines all across Europe. There was, sorry, there wasn't, like, there was potato blight, like, the potato crop failed all over Europe, um, but there wasn't a famine or any, to the scale of Ireland anywhere else. I didn't know that, and it's because of of the policy, because, unfortunately, it's interesting to look back, you know, in one way, at that time, we were British subjects, like, we were under, I think it was Great Britain and Ireland, so... Technically, we were their subjects, and we didn't choose to be, but we were. We were British sub- subjects at that time. And it's, you know, in a lot of ways, it probably still showed us, as in much as they wanted our land, they, they didn't really respect us as a, as a people because you could argue, especially because of the policies and whatnot, if that was in Manchester, that wouldn't have happened. You know, if that, or, you know, in mainland England, if the potato blight had happened and occurred, that wouldn't have happened. People wouldn't have died. So there was a, in one way, they wanted like the, our, us as a colony, but didn't want to completely treat us as fair, equal citizens, even though we were technically British citizens, the exact same as people in Manchester and London at that time. You know, so that's, anyway, so it's it's not to, yeah, maybe what, people say that's controversial, but sorry, go I ahead. Yeah. And what, um, what policy, like, so we couldn't get access to grains and stuff? most of it was export that was it not to I, again I know I, I don't know the complete intricacy but that is a simple version of it is that like there was food around us but that was all export most of it was exported by Queen Victoria I think at the time um, so that was this that's true like there was ships being stuffed full of food all sorts um, so that probably... yeah that was it so obviously and everything gets more and more difficult obviously more starving you get everything everything becomes <laughs> more difficult but yeah yeah that's a simple version of it that all our food most of it if we did have any was then exported over to uh, the UK so it definitely it wasn't caused by anyone except for maybe God the blight but the policies were definitely um were the result they the British definitely caused the famine and everything to come from that for sure uh, unfortunately. Yeah, and like I'd say, I definitely have traits. I always grow like a hundred times more food than I even need. And like yeah, even yeah. in my house, like my friends will be like, "What's that, Kate?" And I'd be like, "Oh no, I need to keep that, you know, just in case." Like in a few months, just like, in case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I and I'm like, you just in case, just in case. You have to think of the long run, you know, like food security, and you know, like I know they'd be laughing at me, and they'd be like, "No, eat it straight away," and I'd be like, "No, but sure, it's not perishable." And you know, it's just, it's funny because then you can have another mindset where you just scoff everything because you're like, oh my God, we might not have food. Whereas I'm always like, no, we need to think about the long run. And like my dad is the same. He, like, I used to be like, why are you growing like a hundred cabbages? Like, we don't need that many. <laughs> and I actually yeah. ended up doing this thing where I came, became like a cabbage dealer and I used to leave like cabbages on people's windows on their cars. Oh, and they put God, on the amazing. window wipers and the cabbage would be like, I used to leave them, I live near the beach, you see. So I used to put them on the surfers' cars and they'd be like, where's the cabbage dealer? You know, I actually thought it was always so. <laughs> that is amazing but that is not amazing that's such a lovely de- uh, deed yeah yeah dropping cabbage and uh... <laughs> it's quite funny brilliant they um... must have been yeah they must have been thinking stories created for children of like the cabbage the she cabbage to kibosh or something 
um brilliant brilliant yeah yeah definitely um so yeah so would you tell me a bit about the hypnotherapy or how to get into that or how do you use it or do you help people yeah yeah so i'd see uh, clients one-to-one um mostly i'd use hypnotherapy as a technique i'd be using now so that was again uh coming out of college i um maybe the only inkling i had of it was you know again through watching it in movies or tv or seeing the show so again there's a lot of misconception around it but i someone appointed me to it someone went oh you, you, you'd like that so i actually did a little weekend course and thought i really loved it and maybe before that i had no, i didn't really meditate right before i didn't really have an inkling or like i didn't really know much about it so it was actually like hypnosis that gave me the avenue towards meditation you know it was going into deep states of relaxation where i was like whoa you know, and I really felt it and it really worked for me. So then I did a, a, a year of um, qualifying as that. And yeah, it's great. It's um, it's like a similar, but not the same as meditation, but you're really guiding someone into a very profound state of relaxation where, yeah, your conscious mind becomes a little bit less dominant and we have more access to your deeper mind. And that's why, again, technically then you're more quote unquote suggestible, but obviously in a therapeutic setting. So again, no one's being made to go dance around a chicken, you know, dance around the room like a chicken. Uh, and that's it but people just have a lot of misconceptions around it so I would always have a conversation about what it is and what it isn't you know so there is no amnesia you know you don't fall like the minute I click my fingers you don't fall asleep uh, you can lie basically that you have full control people have this feeling then because of hypnotist shows that they're going to lose all control um, reveal all their secrets and whatnot and that's just not the case not in that setting anyway absolutely not and yeah and all hypnosis is self-hypnosis i was told that before it's the key so it's that you're really doing it to yourself but it's kind of like you're going through it's kind of like a unconscious agreement you're going anyway with anyway that's why even hypnotist shows work because you're kind of going expecting to be hypnotized so it's part of like yeah a lot of it is like expectation and imagination and a bit of misdirection with hypnosis so that's why it works but it works because we are really relaxed and when we're really relaxed our yeah our bodies are relaxed but our brains are relaxed our mind is so we're open to new ideas so everything works better when we're relaxed that's why you're more suggestible whereas you know when we're stressed or we're oh i don't know you're like you're you're late for work or late to go somewhere to leave the house and you can't find your keys and run around like a mad joke and then eventually at some point you realize and going crazy and running around tearing the place apart isn't working so you realize okay take a deep breath they have to be here somewhere and then you realize they're right in front of you or they're in your hands or something like that that's usually a good example of like when we're stressed, we're very narrow minded, closed minded. But when we're relaxed, we're quite open to new ideas and stuff. So that, that's why in hypnosis, things can work a little bit faster because you're kind of going past that little voice that would be like, this isn't going to work. You know, this will never work with a load of shit. And you're kind of skipping by him or her. And they say, you know, that maybe your deep mind, your subconscious mind, it's kind of like a little child. So it's very gullible it'll, it'll believe anything so that's why usually you're giving very positive suggestions that you agree with not just plant an ending in there so that uh it takes it on board it accepts it immediately so if that makes mm-hmm. sense so that's it yes it could be for a um, number of fears or phobias or smoking but for any, any reason you know sports performance any reason that people come in it is uh i would just spend the main thing is teaching people how to relax you know most of us are very stressed out in society now it's go 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 non-stop so a lot of people, and this happens at workshops or classes, but specifically in one-to-one hyp- you know, hypnotherapy work, you know, after hypnosis at the end of the session, you know, and ask people, oh, how, you know, how was that for you? They'll always say, you know, either like, wow, I, I haven't been that relaxed in ages, or I've never been that relaxed. 
Yeah. And that's lovely and also really sad because <laughs> it's probably, you know, a lot of us aren't getting profound deep relaxation often. We're getting little bits of even putting the feet up. You know, we've been watching Netflix or people having a glass of wine or a beer or having a takeaway or whatever, even reading a book. But there's still a bit of um, stimulation going on or we're picking up our phones or we're watching a movie and on our phone or et cetera. So that's what I would try to. And I still have to encourage myself to do it of, of making sure every now and then you're getting proper relaxation that makes sense yeah so yeah definitely and it is like it's like people aren't and that's actually our natural state i get the people at the yes out in the farm like i take them into the trees or the forest or by the bees we do a bit of ap therapy and it's like lovely they literally come out and like they've never felt like that and like that's really sad and also yeah change is needed because that's not fair like that we aren't experiencing these bliss states which actually are accessible like that's what I tell people half the time people are like are you on drugs I'm like no like you can actually (laughs) get there you know you can actually get there by your body through your body actually through your pain a lot of the time which people Mm. avoid it's the pain they avoid and then it's that light you can access even though it's like you know it takes a bit of courage to go through the pain but it's like yeah i would have seen that sometimes even with clients and even for ourselves in certain points in life where things get really tough for you know a lot of people think i think i'm going mad but with that you're, you're already think you're going mad and then you have this massive wave of motion where it's we're just kind of trained from from a young anyway to maybe repress it because we maybe think like i already think i'm insane so if i you know if you're like just let it go you know if you say just sit with her or just let it wash over you that seems terrifying like okay then i'll completely lose myself in it when actually, if you can be brave enough to do it, that is what actually subsides everything and everything calms down. If you can feel it all, as much as that's terrifying, instead of kind of blocking it and blocking it and blocking it, um, it's it's actually feeling all that makes you, yeah, it, it allows you to not be, well, I suppose we're all a bit mad anyway, but it's the opposite effect. We think we'll, we'll lose everything if we feel it all, but it's actually quite the opposite. Mm. Um, so yeah, and as you, as you say, even nature, like that's a massive one of, and it's so simple and it's free, most of us anyway, but to have access to it. But yeah, the power of even just getting out, fresh air. And that's what I'd even say to people sometimes. Like if you're going for a walk, try not to try not to do it with a podcast. If you can, I think it's, I've noticed that like everyone does that now. And I, I love podcasts, even driving. But if you're going for a walk, I would like, even if there's, especially because we, we do just spend so much time on our phones and everything, including myself. So, if you can carve out a little time, you know, a half an hour or an hour, if you're going hiking, just don't go with headphones. You know, even if it's, I just don't go every single time. There's, there's, I just see that a lot, even with running. Um, I've actually only recently got little earphones, but before that, I never ran. I actually haven't, still haven't got it yet, but I was all running without anything. And in one way, people would be like, oh God, I could never do that. But I suppose you're just, you're taking in, it is enough. It is enough. You know, it's some part of us that's like everything. This isn't enough. I'm bored. I'm not getting stimulated enough, whether that's TV or phones or even, you know, looking out in nature and going, like, if you're saying, ah, this is boring, I need more. That's what you're saying is this moment isn't enough. And, you know, it is, it can be enough sometimes for sure. So like that, it's amazing with the bees and getting people out that people just forget. Because even with like, if you're saying that's our level of our natural state, but most of us now think, you know, that as our stress builds and builds, it gets so high that, we think up here is our normal state because we've gotten stressed for so long that we then think up here, like, oh, 
up here is normal when actually we're like way down here, but we just don't release the valve, take the pressure away. But yeah, so that's it for people like that. Then forget like, whoa, oh, oh, Jesus Christ, I was actually so stressed. Um, and if they have some sort of technique to get them out of that, then they realize, whoa. And it's very I was, whoa, I like really... addictive. Like it's very much that sheep mentality. Like when you're in it, you're really in it, you know? Yeah. Like I, I remember last yeah, I... year I did a festival it was like workshops for a week and I was like okay I can manage this you know but like I'm not used to being around people a lot and I that week I was like whoa but it was actually mostly it was actually mostly the phone stuff that was driving me a bit more bonkers mm. like I didn't mind really doing the workshops it was all going on the phone answering the messages answering the phone calls doing the stuff on the phone and I was like it's the phone that actually makes me go way off my center like and I just have right I'm putting it away going to the woods for a few hours so I can actually regulate because I don't think we realize how bad the phone actually can be for us, like our nervous system. Oh, yeah. You know? And, and that's and maybe, like, people don't have the... And it's unfortunate. But I suppose there is some nature in some capacity getting out. But I know people say, oh, I don't have access to it. But you're right. Like, and then the more... The more... T- I definitely know if I'm tired, it's more hard to be like, oh, to read or something. It's easier then to pick up the phone. And I'll know yeah. then. I'll know then, like, because then, then, you're, then you're in the cycle then of it. And, uh, but it is funny, like, I'll get to a point, I'm sure, where you're just like, oh, I'm sick of that. You know, like, know. I'm, I've actually bored myself with, with scrolling. Because, <laughs> again, it is part of us and there's parts where you're good and there's, there's days where you're good and there's days where you're like, oh, that was a, you know, that was a quote-unquote bad day. But it is at least being even bringing some awareness to it of actually, okay, that's probably enough now. Because it even actually is funny. Unless someone's writing to you, and I even notice this, like, there's actually probably only a few minutes where I'm on. And then it's like, I'm actually not getting any out of this now. You know, on Instagram, once I've answered the messages, check the notifications. It's not really like not much to like. I know that some people could sit on it for hours, but I definitely don't have that after even a few minutes. I'm like, right, that's that's probably enough now. But you just it reels you in, like any even with Netflix or anything. It does kind of there's an it's like an insidious nature to it. It does slowly get in on you, and then you're like, ah, sure, one more episode and. Yeah. And we're all in a way, you know, some of us are better than others and I have good days where I'm great and then other days, and it's not to get too hard on ourselves, but like that, I've even building some level of awareness you know, of starting to have time out. The, the stuff that gives you joy, that's not just technology and stuff. Um, there's nothing wrong, even like there's nothing wrong with watching TV and watching movies, enjoying that, um, but having different avenues of getting pleasure, you know, whether that's music or art or oh anything, digging and gardening and running the roads, whatever it is, but find, even for that, I always say, find something that works for you. Even if it's jumping in freezing cold lakes, who cares? Yeah. But if it works for you, it works for you, you know, and it's great. And it is to maybe do a bit of homework because, yeah, different stuff. You'll be surprised sometimes the thing that's like a completely insane thing you would have thought that that works for you to kind of bit of crack and can regulate you at times, you know. But we are, we're so used to being stressed that I think people, we just don't even know it. A lot of people sometimes just don't, aren't even aware where of how long like that we're just in that state of like that being on your phone and being scattered and then maybe people live a week like and that I think or the, a month or a year coffee as well like the coffee i don't think people realize like how like Im- impactful it is on the nervous system like when i if i ever have coffee like i cannot no way in hell can i reach any bliss state like i'm so dysregulated i know that's not everybody but like <laughs> i drank it for a long time and i even worked on a coffee yeah, I never realized it like until then I was like reading books and I was like, what's I couldn't read the books. I couldn't experience yeah. any of that like ecstaticness. You can like I couldn't watch nature in its purity. Like, you know, I just was so 
my mind was like I and I could run I could run a 10k then and I'd be grand I'd be like oh thank god I'm back down but like yeah I think we're well maybe I think we're resensitizing definitely but it's like all these little things maybe we just don't think of that are really you know affecting our nervous system um it's just that we can become aware of it you know oh yeah and it's funny I remember reading somewhere uh I think that's when my teachers told me that uh you know, coffee, it's not a coincidence to become our, if you look at the major stimulants or, or drugs of the society and like the Western world, our main stimulant is a coffee, which would bode well for capitalism, you know, and, and production. And what do they do in, like, I know friends work in offices, they give you free coffee. You know, it is, it's funny if you think about it, it's so obvious. They're like, the bastards are so cunning. And you're just wound, like. <laughs> yeah, and I have to find myself because I, I actually never drank coffee up till, about three or four years ago, people are always like, what? I always, I was just like, my nana used to call me a tea belly. I was mad for tea, which is obviously has caffeine in it as well. And then I, my partner, Claire, was like slowly kind of like, no, I think you like this. So she started with like, soy vanilla latte, something real sweet, you know, not very masculine drink. I was like, oh, that, that's all right. And then it slowly became, you know, an Americano. And then I was hooked, of course. But I didn't realize I had to learn what worked for me and what didn't work for me. And I didn't know that if you had two coffees in a row for me, I, I I was I felt really nauseous and like real shaky and I thought I was um you know sometimes if you're really hungry I know maybe I'm a bit dramatic but sometimes if I'm starving you'd be like feeling a bit weak I oh, then yeah. deemed that to be hunger when it was like it was the coffee and it took me ages to realize oh no it's I've just started drinking two cups of coffee so of course I'm high as a kite and shaky so even now I learn I I can't I'll have the one coffee and that's fine but I can't have two. But I'd say no you're way. going, I'd say you're going for the food because it's trying to ground you. I often find that if I'm under, yeah, exactly. you're going for the food is trying to bring you back down. Um, yeah. But yeah, but I was just going to say, have you any tips for anybody who wants to get back the Gaeilga? Yeah, I would. I think definitely there's nice, I know for me, even a little connection to, um, yeah, to historic stuff would be even uh, like, learning an Irish song I know that's a bad but I found a great joy and even if you're like oh I don't speak it starting to listen to a little bit maybe like a faint like a there's real simple ones you know you can learn but learning Irish music and then starting to um yeah I suppose great ways are maybe a little bit introducing riding the gates in the, in the car you know trying to get it as much as we do a lot of it, most most of us don't live in a Gaelic area but immersion of some of this capacity whether it's a simple podcast or learning a lot and there is loads now there's loads of pages even on Instagram there's people that are doing good work like Gael Culture and, and like Let's Learn Irish and it's all about Irish and um, was it Irish at Molly or something there's there's a plethora of stuff now from beginner to advanced to pick up on that definitely I, I'd imagine aren't expensive so it's them there is, I'm sure there's classes, there's circle chorus, there's like circles going on. There, there is a lot out there if you start looking. There is options out there. And I didn't even know until last year, there's even adult Gael talks, you know, in Donegal, in Cork, in, in Connemara. There is options out there if you are passionate about it and you are interested. You can do it. And it's just our hang-ups about it. Because, you know, you'll there's a lot of foreign nationals that come here and can learn Irish no better. In a way, so it's again. These are even myths, like myths we have. Oh, it's a really hard language. It's just as hard as any other language, really. It seems like, but every like every language is difficult, and it's hard to understand when you first start. So, and even to trust as well that for a lot of Irish people, anyway, from our perspective, you know, to you probably have a lot more than you think. That's what I hear a lot of people. You know, everyone says I don't have a lick of Irish. Don't have a lick of Irish. 
but in meditation or when I'm, you know, guiding them through something, they'll say afterwards, like, whoa, I, I understood a lot more than I thought. Or when you then said it in English, I went, oh, I did not. You know, so it, it is there down to somewhere to trust that because it's just something we tell ourselves. I don't have it when you've done it for a good few years. There is something there. Uh, and and just trying to let go of, um, yeah, the shame around it. We have enough of that, but, to, you know, it is safe now. Maybe at some point in time, it wasn't safe. It's safe now to speak our native tongue, you know, to sing our music and dance and, and what, anything. So, and repetition like that, bring it in some capacity, even sometimes buying books, um, primary school books, you know, like workbooks. You can get them in charity shops. They're good as well, like either Leaving Start Junior Start or even primary school and reading them, getting kids' books, Oscuelga. There is... Yeah, if you're passionate about it, there's a lot out there. It's like anything, even with, yeah, if you want to dive into a certain genre at the start, a subject, you don't really know much about it. But if you dive into that, there's a million options. So even with Irish, there actually is a lot out there. Um, So I'd encourage you to do it and just go for it. Yeah, and, and not was, be afraid and not make mistakes. Yeah, really good tips. Um, definitely the primary school books is all there handy. I think we were having a couple of fuckle one day, me and my friend. It was so funny because we were like trying to have a secret conversation. Like, you know, we were out traveling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's have our secret conversations. Like, it feels like really fun. And then we were like, what accent do you have? And I was like, well, I have an Irish accent. She's like, what do you have, Irish? And we're like, it was like we were trying to say we were tr- speaking our own tongue, but like asking ourselves, yeah, did yeah. we have an accent? And I'm like, of course we have. It's our language, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't need yeah. to put on an accent, you know. It's just it is, and and it's not even that little thing of yeah. And if you have the Cooper Fogel, it is great if you're abroad, you know, because yeah. no one has a clue. In reason, you're the odds of you meeting someone. It's like, oh, do you fancy low. that? Do you fancy that Spanish guy over yeah. there? You can just yeah, you know, yeah. pretend. Um, but yeah, I actually, I actually had one, one, uh, one little thing. It was before we go because I know I have to, I have to run for my son now. But um, I knew I knew a lad that was over in London, and he was in a shop. He went to a girls' school, so he had Irish. Um and he was in a shop and these you know, these young lads came in in London speaking Irish so they must have been on some school trip over to yeah, England yeah. to London and we're all speaking Irish and started taking the piss out of your man but didn't like obviously they, they were like oh you know look at the state of this lad but they're all doing an Irish thinking you know this guy is going to be some English lad and he obviously spoke back to him was like oh you're talking about me lads you know and it was all very joking but they were like mind blown because um they obviously thought what are the odds of meeting another Irish person in London. That can speak Irish. Anyway, I just thought that was a real funny story. Um, yeah, so you never know. You're never too far away as well from an Irish speaker. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. And if anybody wants to find any more about your workshops, they can go onto your Instagram. What is it? Yeah, Shalina Rua. Shalina Rua. I'm sure I can tag Shalina. it up online. And Magic. Folks, if you've liked this episode, please give it a share. And thank you to the patrons for supporting. If you can contribute and help me on my B mission, go on to patreon.com slash catch caught. And I'll talk to you all very soon. Sloan.